Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. We're going to pray together, then we're going to read this text of Scripture, and then um, we're going to look through it together and see what the Lord has for us in this text this morning. Acts chapter 24. In your pew Bible, it begins on page 933, and I invite you to follow along and then to leave it open in front of you because we'll walk through this text a bit at a time this morning. Listen to the Word of God as soon as we have prayed and sought His Spirit to enable us to do so. Father, thank You this morning that we can be here in this place. And yet, even though each of us has overcome the obstacles that were thrown in our path toward this gathering this morning and are here together, whether in this room or whether here by, uh, by live stream, we thank You, Father, for setting us apart together as the body of Christ at this time. And we ask that You would communicate to us the purpose for Your gathering through the proclamation of Your Word. That You would do in our hearts and minds that which You have intended to do through this text of Scripture. Father, we yield ourselves to You this morning as best we know how, but we acknowledge along with that yielding our weakness, our temptation toward distraction, our many thoughts that can crowd in and choke out or drown out the Word of God. And I pray that this morning You would provide the grace through Your Spirit to hear and to understand Your Word and to receive it with thanksgiving and to obey it with abandon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, Reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me, but this 
I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none, of his, or that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So reads the Word of God. We come this morning to just the next account in Luke's early history of the spreading of the gospel in fulfillment of the Great Commission. We're in the sequence of trials in the life of the Apostle Paul that eventually took him to Rome. Today we see his trial before the Roman governor Felix, as we have just read, in Caesarea, the capital city of the province of Judea. And even though it's hard to imagine how this scene could have any relevance to us today, do you hear that as you read it? it? Sounds like a historical account, interesting in many respects, but wow, what is there here for us? Even though we could find it hard to imagine how this scene could have any relevance to us today, I think you'll be surprised to find out that it does. It really does. So let's walk through this and see how. Due to a plot against his life, if you recall, reading about that in chapter 23, Paul had been sent to Felix under the cover of darkness with a sizable entourage by the Roman tribune in Jerusalem, whose name we find out in chapter 23 was Claudius Lysias. And Lysias had written an explanatory letter to Felix so that he'd have all the necessary facts as to why he was sending Paul to him there in Caesarea. That scene ended last 
Sunday with Felix waiting for Paul's accusers to arrive, chapter 23, verse 35. And now our scene opens this morning, the one that we just read. So let's follow this story now through four parts and see what it has to teach us. You can see those listed there for you and you get a sense of where this sermon is going to go by hearing the four-point outline. First of all, the mockery of a legitimate trial. That's verses 1 to 21. We'll spend the bulk of our time there because that's the, uh, the, most of the text here. Second, the pretense of a legitimate verdict, verses 22 and 23. Then the charade of a legitimate dialogue, verses 24 to 26. And finally, the absence of a legitimate outcome. So there's trouble in this text. And that's the beginning of our seeing and understanding what it is that uh, we could learn from it. So let's start with point one there, a mockery of a legitimate trial. Five days after Paul arrived there in Caesarea, the high priest, Ananias, came down with his entourage that included some elders, we're told here in verse 1, but also, in effect, a prosecuting attorney. That's Tertullus. That's who came along with the, uh, this, this group from Jerusalem. And it was an influential group. And the mockery of a legitimate trial begins right away with Tertullus's opening words, this prosecuting attorney's flattery of Felix to win his goodwill. There's actually a term for that in Latin that takes place at, um, in, in a trial. It's proper to begin with a statement that puts you in the good graces of the judge. But Tertullus's words were empty flattery here to the point of being blatantly false. Look what he says in verse 2. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. There's Tertullus's opening words. In reality... To quote one commentator, Felix had put down several insurrections with such barbarous brutality that he earned for himself the horror, not the thanks, of the Jewish population. Another wrote, he made life miserable for the Jews and thus was the cause of rebellious movements far more than being the solution to them. So there's the truth about Felix in comparison to what the prosecuting attorney representing the high priest and the elders of Israel said to this Roman governor. That's how we begin. Regardless, Tertullus lays out his case, and Luke records it rather briefly here. He had three charges against Paul. Keep your finger on the text, verses 5 and following, and we'll see what those were. First, Paul was a plague, one who stirs up riots, is what the text says. Second, he was a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now that word sect there is the word, if we were to say it in Greek, you can hear, heresies. It didn't yet at this point in history mean heresy the way we do. It was just a splintering off, a subgroup 
over time, that word heresies has been used to apply to an aberrant uh, ideology, to something that's false, to something that denies the truth. But that is, uh, that, that, that flows through history and that uh, definition develops slowly. But here, that's the word that um, was used for the sect of the Nazarenes. That's Christianity, right? So he was accused of being the ringleader of a sect of the Nazarenes. And then third, and most seriously, according to Jewish law at least, he tried to profane the temple, verse 6. So those are the three charges against Paul. That's what the prosecuting attorney lays out. And here, trying to profane the temple, he's likely referring to that faulty charge of the Jews from Asia back in chapter 21 who thought that Paul had tried to bring Trophimus the Ephesian with him into the temple. That's the way Luke recorded it back then. So that was an erroneous situation to begin with, but here it's still the basis of the third and most serious of the charges that Tertullus and the high priests are laying out against Paul. From there... After just listing the charges, Tertullus assured Felix that a simple examination would prove the truth of these charges, and the Jews with him, that is the high priest and some elders, agreed with this statement that Tertullus had made. And this is all that Luke records of the charges that were made against Paul in Caesarea. At that point, Felix then turned to Paul in verse 10, And he made a goodwill statement as well, the second half of verse 10 there. Paul did. But it was a much more modest statement. Then he proceeded to refute each of Tertullus' three points. And you can follow that through what Paul said here. First, he said, I had not been in Jerusalem any more than 12 days, verse 11 there, and then on into verse 12, as they did not, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues, or in the city streets. There's no truth to what they've said here in point one. Second, he went on to say, the way is not a sect. By the way, it seems as though Felix had a certain understanding of Christianity, of the way, through his wife, who is identified as being Jewish a little bit later in the text. We'll pick that up at the time. But Paul, in appealing here, doesn't have to explain himself too much because he knows the person to whom he's speaking has a pretty good understanding of what he's doing and why, and probably of his own history. So he says, the way is not a sect. Rather, verse 14, I worship the God of our fathers. Such a central, affirming statement here. We've chosen it to be the title of this sermon. This is where Paul stands This is the truth worth affirming, that this this way, as it is spreading under the sovereign hand of God, is worshiping the God of our fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in the courtroom on trial, Paul makes this affirmation. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law, believing everything written in the prophets, having a hope in God, the same as these men, he says in verse 15, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust at the end of this age. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the way is built on the Jewish Scriptures. doesn't deny them. 
It affirms them. In fact, it fulfills them. That's what he's preaching, the fulfillment of the promises that have been made through the Jewish Scriptures. Law, prophets, and writings. It's explaining how the Jewish hope and the resurrection will actually be accomplished through the work of Christ, who Himself has already been raised from the dead. And then, to what end that resurrection happens? If it's both the just and the unjust who will be raised, the just are raised to eternal life, the unjust to eternal condemnation. This is the finishing of the story, Paul is saying. This is the way that is built on the foundation of the law and the prophets. Third, he said, and essentially summarizing verses 16 through the first part of verse 18, he's saying, I was behaving consistently with the law while I was in the temple area. Everything I did, coming back, bringing alms to my needy brothers and sisters here, worshiping God, I was ceremonially pure. I just finished a vow. All of that provable? So in essence, what he's saying here is that I was behaving consistently with the law the whole time I was there. And that was just 12 days ago. When am I alleged to have done all these things that the high priest and the elders are charging me with? Picking up in the middle of verse 18, but some Jews from Asia, now reading in some language from verse 21, stirred up the whole crowd and falsely accused me so, but some Jews from Asia, and then Paul stops and says, they ought to be here before you. This is a point of order that is very important. They ought to be here before you to make accusation should they have anything against me. What Paul is saying here in, Fest, in Felix's court is that it was a serious breach of Roman law that the eyewitnesses to whatever it was he's being charged with weren't present. Yeah, it's the high priest and the elders they didn't see this. They, didn't, they weren't eyewitnesses to what went on. This trouble was actually stirred up, if you remember, by the Jews from Asia who saw Paul with Trophimus and thought that he had taken him into the, into the temple. And so they seized him, and they even make reference to that right here. But Paul is pointing out the fact that his accusers aren't actually here in court. He finishes in verse 21 saying, essentially, my most divisive act, my most disruptive act that I've done during these 12 days that are in question is that I cried out in the council, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. There's the most divisive thing I did in Jerusalem. And it did kick up a storm of debate and disagreement between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, resulting in the fact that the Sadducees thought Paul was guilty of something and the Pharisees affirmed that he wasn't back in chapter 21. Or 23, excuse me. So that's the worst I've done, Paul said. And with this, he rested his defense and the arguments were finished. That's all that Luke recorded of this exchange before Felix. So that moves us into the verdict stage, verses 22 through 23. With this statement from Paul, Felix was now stuck. And what's interesting is that he didn't even find a particularly graceful way to avoid 
making a decision, which is what he's doing. He's avoiding making a decision. All he said was, verse 22, when Lysias comes down, I will decide your case. He put it off. In fact, that's what the text tells us he did, right? He put it off. The problem is that Lysias had already given Felix his thoughts in that letter that was recorded back in chapter 23. And the problem that Felix was now facing, in the words of one commentator, like Lysias before him and Festus after him, Felix knew that Paul was guilty of no crime. Still, he ruled over the Jews and had to live among them here in Caesarea. And there were powerful Jews in this delegation calling for Paul's condemnation. So Felix didn't want to incur their wrath. And he couldn't think of anything better to do. He thought it was easier to put off this whole matter, waiting for Lysias' arrival, even if it meant that Paul had to be detained in order to do it, detaining a Roman citizen without his being convicted of a crime. It's a pretty egregious offense against Roman justice. But we're not here to comment on that this morning. Essentially, we can say this, that's how this whole mess ended was with that verdict, that verdict from Felix. It ended with the pretense of a legitimate verdict at the close of a mockery of a trial. Felix, most simply, was in no position to rule based on Jewish law. That wouldn't have happened in a Roman court, but the problem was there was no offense under Roman law. So Paul was kept in custody, verse 23, under the loosest expression possible of Roman imprisonment. That's why that part is added, don't hinder his friends from coming in and ministering to him. Paul was under a, a, a loose form, in fact, the loosest form of Roman justice in that, yes, he was being detained, but people had access to him and he could live a relatively normal life, except that he couldn't leave the premises. That moves us on to the charade of a legitimate dialogue that comes in verses 24 to 26. After all this took place, while Paul is detained, we might say illegally in Herod's Praetorium, Felix and his wife Drusilla created opportunities to talk with Paul about faith in Christ. Were they interested in Christ? Were they trying to avoid any sort of backlash from Paul pointing out that he had been illegally treated? Uh, what was it? Well, we get a hint of that as we continue moving through this text. But the fact is that Felix and his wife, who was Jewish, we see there in verse 24, talked with Paul about faith in Christ. And it's interesting what Paul addressed with them in verse 25. But first, just a little bit of context that's needful in order to appreciate the very exceedingly brief summary that Luke gives here of what he talked to these two about. All right, first, Felix is Drusilla's second husband. Drusilla is Felix's third wife. She's reported to have been unusually beautiful. She was probably about 18 years old at this point. 
And he used an intermediary, one who was known to be a magician, to lure her away from her first husband. It was an unsatisfying marriage for her, and he sent in a friend of his to talk her into leaving her husband and coming and marrying him. He told her he would make her very happy. Uh, that's what Felix means, the name, happy. Uh, it's sort of a play on words, historically interesting to note. I'll be Felix to you. She was the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa I, one of at least three daughters. Uh, Herod Agrippa I was the one who killed James back in chapter 12, killed him with a sword, and then later died in his pride, if you remember, eaten by worms. That was her dad. This also makes her the sister of King Agrippa II and of Bernice, whom we'll meet in the next chapter, chapter 25, next Sunday, God willing. You can tend to think that Agrippa and Bernice were husband and wife. They actually weren't. They were brother and sister, both sisters of Drus sister and brother of Drusilla. So given this context, given this understanding of what was going on, what we heard, and also together with what we heard earlier about Felix's brutal attacks, so a bit of his character, now his immoral ways, it's little wonder that Paul chose to speak with them about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. Isn't that interesting? Righteousness almost surely with regard to the unrighteousness and injustice of his treatment of the Jews in these circumstances. Surely self-control ties off to the marriages back and forth between the two of these people. And then coming judgment, you're held accountable for this. There's a problem here. So this whole uh, faith in Christ Jesus thing that you want to talk to me about, you need this. Because the sins of which you are openly and publicly guilty, you'll be held accountable for. You'll be held accountable for before God. So a very suitable trio of topics for Paul to talk to these two about. And verse 25 says what? Felix was alarmed. You know what? Go away for now. I think I've, I think I've talked enough. Felix was alarmed. Paul's words got to him. The Spirit of God used the words of Paul to penetrate the heart of Felix. Not to the point of repentance, it doesn't appear. Because in the end, it seems like he was more interested in bribe money, verse 26, and in currying favor with the Jews, verse 27, than he was in hearing anything about Jesus. So it's interesting to note but that judgment about which Paul warned Felix and Drusilla is probably awaiting them, even at the conclusion of their conversations. Moves us into verse 27 and the outcome. Even after all of this, then, Paul sat there in Roman custody for two years. Sat there in Roman custody for two years, ostensibly waiting the arrival of Lysias, 
wonder if Lysias was ever even notified that Felix was waiting for him. And then Felix left Paul there even when he, what appears here, just left office. But from history, we know that Festus didn't just leave office. He didn't just rotate out or something along those lines. He was actually removed from office for, and now I quote, total mismanagement of a dispute between the Jews and Gentiles of Caesarea. He was disciplined out of his office uh, for incompetence, ultimately. And as he left office, he still didn't commute Paul's sentence. He left him there in prison, in detainment. And this is the Apostle Paul. Our temptation is to go one of any number of directions right now with this story as it finishes, drawing implications. But I just want to zero in on the fact that this was the Apostle Paul that we're talking about. This is Paul experiencing Roman justice and the outcome of it. And as the chapter comes to a conclusion... He has spent two years in prison and is left there as the leader who put him there is disciplined out of his role. He just remained in Herod's praetorium for that two-year period doing nothing worthy of Luke's record. Do you note that? There's nothing that Luke records of that two-year period of time except for occasional talks with Felix and Drusilla. That's it. We don't even know the content of that except we know a bit of their response to it. That's the absence of the legitimate outcome. So we have to ask the question, what are we to make of this story today? What is its relevance to us that I suggested we'd find in this story today? I'm glad you asked, because I think it could be helpful to reflect on this just a bit. Again, a little context. I've noticed in my life what a high level of importance I place on efficiency. Do you find that in your life as well, that life needs to run efficiently? We sense God's blessing and presence when things go efficiently, <laughs> don't we? I can suspect conspiracy if a green light I'm approaching turns yellow too soon for me to slide through. I have a friend who jokes about becoming paranoid if he misses an opening in a revolving door. We can worship efficiency. As a matter of fact, we can talk about efficiency as though it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and efficiency. As we said, it can be to us a sign of God's blessings when things are going smoothly. No interruptions, no hardships, no struggles. When we had young children, Gene and I often marveled at the timing of a dirty diaper. right when the central expressions of, of life and ministry, gospel advance, were hanging in the balance, we had to stop and change a diaper or clean up other things. One of our children, I won't embarrass him by telling you which one, <laughs> 
would spit up every Sunday morning when we got to the door ready to leave for church. It was, it was an automatic reflex. I don't know. I don't know if it was a reaction to church or what, but he leads worship now, and I, I think that's okay. It doesn't, he, he stopped somewhere along the way. Sorry, bud. But we'll enjoy it as a moment together as family. <laughs> we can worship efficiency. Here we see the Apostle Paul on mission with God. His story being recorded in Scripture for all the ages. This is the advance of the Gospel in the early days of the church. This is the story and this is the central figure. As we move away from Jerusalem and Judea into Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth, this is the story of the advance of the Great Commission. God can sovereignly assure Paul, his appointed servant, the one who was saved on the road to Damascus for this purpose. God can sovereignly assure him whenever he needs to that he'll be safe. Chapter 18, chapter 22, chapter 23. Interventions from God letting Paul know that he'll be safe. That his message will bear fruit. Chapter 18. Whatever reassurance he needs. God guides Paul's steps. We see that. Anywhere. But God guided Paul's steps to Felix's court. Where he remained for two years. Sitting, doing nothing worthy of Luke's record. Paul was going to Rome, the heart of the empire. We've already been told that he's headed there, that God has told him he must get there. Paul's going to Rome where he'd meet the church that would be his sending church to go on to Spain with the gospel. Romans 15, verse 24. Yet here he sat. And worse, it wasn't just random inefficiency that landed him there. It was unfairness and genuine injustice that landed him there. The false accusations of jealous, vindictive Jews thinking they're doing the work of God followed by this sham of a trial before a Roman court. Do you know what's missing from Luke's account? Any record of a complaint from Paul. Any insinuation of a complaint through Luke. Just telling the story. Unfairness and genuine injustice are no joke to us at all, are they? When we experience them, we point it out. We let people know and we expect matters to be addressed. We expect them to be set right. 
But Paul just quietly endured them here. Part of the plan of God. I wonder what he would have done in COVID. We can think we, we miss a day somehow, something eternal has been lost when it's quite possible that God himself set aside for that day two years. And Luke all but ignored these two years in his narration. And he reported only the facts about the inefficiency, only the details Yet this is how Paul got to Rome. This is the inspired story on the gospel spreading. This is how Paul got to Rome eventually in due course. This is how it happened. This is the eternal plan of God for Paul. This is the eternal plan of God for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. These are the earliest days in God's own inspired word on how it happens. Two years detained in Caesarea. This recalls his, his months and miles of travel westward on the second journey. Remember back in chapter 16? Where he's kept from going here and kept from going there? And it had to be four to six months, minimally, that Paul's sort of wandering west before he hears the Macedonian call and heads over to Philippi and Thessalonica? What can we learn about this? Three lessons for us today that I'd like to put before you because I think we need it. First, efficiency does not equal effectiveness in gospel ministry. Efficiency does not equal effectiveness in gospel ministry. Often our learning and growth happens somewhere off in the weeds. Plus, I believe God's kingdom runs on a different time schedule than this world, don't you think? Scripture even tells us that. A day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. God is not... Ignoring sin, he's patient, waiting for repentance. I think God's kingdom runs on a different time schedule than this world, even a different time signature. The cadence and rhythms are different. Efficiency does not equal effectiveness in gospel ministry. Lesson two, injustice doesn't impede effectiveness in gospel ministry. Did you hear that? Injustice. Let that sink in with all of its relative meanings and applications. Injustice doesn't impede, does not impede effectiveness in gospel ministry. Often it's just the appointed circumstances of our service. And there's no substitute for injustice to make us like Christ. Have you noted that? There is no substitute for injustice 
to make us like Christ. We'll get to a passage that underscores that in a moment. But at, the, at this point, I'll just say, anything to help us conform, not conform to this world, but conform to the character of Christ has got to be embraced. And injustice is one of the things that can do it most effectively. When we have a serious and legitimate biblical understanding of how we respond to injustices that we face. Injustice doesn't impede effectiveness in gospel ministry. Third, and this lesson now turns outward a bit and is worded differently than the other two. It's a charge. Let's begin looking for God in the detours and delays of this life. Let's begin looking for God in the detours and delays of this life, the twists and the turns, the ins and the outs, the speed-ups and the slowdowns. This may actually be where we see and hear God most clearly. It may be when we most sense His nearness is in these times of inefficiency and unfairness and injustice such that we learn something about clinging tightly to the grace of God in the midst of those hardships. I was blessed yesterday listening to Don Jones reflect on the life of little Eden, his daughter. I know a number of you were at a memorial service yesterday uh, for Eden who passed away after five and a half years. And what a delight to hear the impact of that little girl in her family's life. Severe hardships. Lived much longer than was anticipated. And actually ended up, in Don's own estimation, being a blessing every single day along the way. We're not talking about inefficiency or injustice there, but we could talk about what could feel unfair when we're entrusted with circumstances like that to manage. Let's begin looking for God in the detours and delays of life. It's not just by an act of our will, though, by the way, that we can hear and heed these lessons. We don't just decide, yeah, those are good ideas. Let's go pursue those. We just aren't capable of doing that. That's not within our capacity to hear gospel-rooted lessons and just go do. We need help with that. This isn't just a let's do better sort of a charge this morning. We actually have a Savior who absorbed not only the cost of our sin, something that we often reflect on with deep appreciation and gratitude, but we have a Savior who not only absorbed the cost of our sin, but He also absorbed the cost of any sin done against us. He freed us from that. Do you hear that? Freed us from the weight of injustice bearing down on our souls. Our freedom comes in Christ to endure those times and to embrace them as the school of faith through which our relationship with God is developed and strengthened and grows toward maturity.
The salvation we have in Christ enables us to love Him and fellowship with Him more deeply through the sufferings and the injustices we experience. And here is where I would direct your attention to 1 Peter chapter 2 that describes it so well. Take a moment and turn over there with me if you would. 1 Peter chapter 2, and with this we are concluding this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, talking about unjust suffering, Peter writes to his congregation, for this is a gracious thing. Hear that. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, that means enabled by faith, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Jumping ahead to verse 21, only for efficiency's sake. But you can read this full text later. For to this we have been called. We're called to this. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example so that we might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten. But He continued entrusting Himself to God who judges justly. He entrusted himself to God and in the midst of that found the strengthening in his relationship with God to endure injustice and exhibit the character of God for Christ sinlessly. Then the finishing verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Then quoting from Isaiah 53, by His wounds, we have been healed. Implication, healed to the place where injustice drives us into the embrace of a loving, affirming, refreshing, strengthening God. It doesn't drive us into the streets to carry placards and demand justice. It says to us that God meets us in those times and enables our understanding and appreciation of Him to the point where we, like Jesus, can endure injustice and not be turned into something other than Jesus through it. Our tank is so filled by the grace and mercy of God that not even injustice can make us feel hungry and lacking and empty. So full of God that we don't feel the emptiness of the ways of the world. This is the power by which we're freed from stumbling over inefficiencies and unfairnesses and injustices in this life. This is the power by which we are freed. Freed from that.
by faith in this Jesus, we can be equipped to take such times in stride just like Paul modeled here in this text. By faith in Jesus, then, we are not only equipped to take these times in stride, but we're equipped to experience an ever-deepening walk with Him, an ever-deepening love for Him, an ever-deepening intimacy with Him through these very experiences that we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to discover in any other way than the crucible of hardship that makes us, drives us to depend on God in the way that Paul had to be depending on him during this season. Friends, there's the relevant word that I think is helpful to us this morning. This is what's available to us through the person of Christ. And we got to read this story together this morning and watch Paul model it. Now it's not just Jesus' example from 1 Peter 2. It's Paul's example from Acts 24 that Jesus can even enable this in the life of a fallen sinner like you and me. And what an attractive call that is. Friends, pray with me now, if you would, that our Lord God would do this work in our hearts, making us such people who follow in the steps of Jesus, following His example, and now, while I pray, those who are going to be leading in worship and serving communion, please join me at the front. Heavenly Father, this is a tall order, and we recognize that. This could just be one more event in the life of Paul, and yet we see that it is so much more than that. And we pray that what you did in Paul's life to enable the narrative that Luke wrote here in Acts 24 about these circumstances, that you would do in our lives as well. And the brothers and sisters in this body, may we experience the fullness of what you have intended for us through the finished work of Christ on the cross, for which we now give thanks to you at the table of the Lord. Father, do this work for your glory, for our good, and for the ongoing spread of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.